0: He's the host of the podcast Southbound at WFAE, Charlotte's NPR news station, where he also does weekly commentaries. Tommy spent 23 years as a reporter and local columnist for the Charlotte Observer, where he was a finalist for the 2005 Pulitzer Prize in commentary. He's the author of the memoir, The Elephant in the Room, about life as an overweight man in a growing America, which he will be reading from in this episode. We also had a good conversation. You'll get to hear some of that in just a moment. I'm Jude Brewer, welcome to Storybound. So to start off, Tommy, from Southbound to Storybound, here you are. (laughs) Uh, You, I just want to start right off the bat. You nearly lost your voice. And by the way, I have a whole thing of things I want to talk to you about, but I literally just learned this about you, that, I mean, you have your written voice, an admirably honest written voice, but you almost lost your literal voice. And that was 29 years ago, so it's almost would be, what, your 30th anniversary from where you feared your ultimate dream was going to vanish? So, like... I have to say, Columbia Journalism Review has a really nice piece on this, uh, written by Tony Rehagen. Are you happy with with the piece they wrote?
1: Yeah, I am. and i I wrote a piece about it at one time. there's There's three or four floating around on there. Yeah, so it's been almost almost exactly half my life ago when this happened. I was twenty nine years old, had just come back to work uh, at the Charlotte Observer newspaper after leaving there for a while and coming back. I had laryngitis, I thought, that just wouldn't go away. And after a couple of weeks, I went to see a doctor who sent me to another doctor who said they thought I had a little polyp in there that would be easy to get out. They went in and did it, outpatient surgery, and they found that it was cancer. And um, at 29, I had the option of either having um, radiation therapy which would preserve my voice but would have a lesser chance of actually getting rid of the cancer versus surgery, which would almost surely get rid of the cancer, but I might not have a voice at the end of it. And After going back and forth for a while, I opted, you know, for the thing that was most likely to keep me alive and had the surgery and, and was in the hospital for 17 days, not knowing if I would come out with a voice or not. Obviously, as a somebody who made my living, makes my living as a reporter, that was um, uh, some difficult time thinking about how I might do my job, um, much less just other normal things of living. After that 17 days, they took all the stuff out and I I spoke and I had roughly the same voice that I'm talking with now, obviously a sort of diminished and raspy thing, but that's what I've had for the last 29 years. I'd worked for the Charlotte Observer for three years, I'd left to pursue some other stuff, and had just come back. So I was starting out, I'd been hired as a feature writer, write about music and other things, but I was, you know, sort of in what I thought at the time was my prime, Um, and and had a a long future, I thought, in front of me, as a journalist, and, you know, obviously a big part of this job is interviewing people, and as I was in the hospital, especially, you know, couldn't speak for all this time, I, I thought a lot about, like, how am I going to do this job if I can't speak? Um, and, and you know, didn't have any great answers except to just hope that it would work out. You know, I ended up trying not to think about it a lot. And, like, I played a ton of Tetris on the Game Boy, you know, while I was uh, in the hospital and wrote notes to my mom and my friends who came and all that sort of thing, but, you know, there were a lot of sleepless nights, just kind of wondering how it would all turn out. Hey there, this is Tommy Tomlinson. I'm the author of the memoir, The Elephant in the Room, One Fat Man's Quest to Get Smaller in a Growing America. I'm going to be reading a couple of excerpts from this book. The first will be the prologue. And then I'll be reading a little bit from later on about my family in Georgia and kind of how I grew up and how that fits into all this. So here we go. Prologue, Killing the Hog. I have this dream. We're on a road trip out in this house in the country. And I'm trying to talk to my wife, but this hog gets in the house. It stinks and it's slick to the touch and I can't keep it off me. I push it away, but it keeps plowing back, and I see tusks. I finally shove it out the door. Now I'm in bed. Here comes the hog again. I could barely stave it off with my hands. It's all over me. I get to my feet and kick it and ram it with my shoulder, and we tumble out into the yard. My mouth is coated with hog slime. I reach in and scrape it off my tongue. I'm half-dressed, stinking, miserable. Suddenly we're back in a room and I can sense I'm being watched. Three or four official looking people are lined up at a table like judges on a panel. One of them says here's what you have to do. I wake up knowing two things. One, I have to kill the hog. Two, The hog is a part of me. New Year's Eve 2014. I weigh 460 pounds. Those are the hardest words I've ever had to write. Nobody knows that number. Not my wife, not my doctor, not my closest friends. It feels like confessing a crime. The average American male weighs 195 pounds. I'm two of those guys with a 10-year-old left over. I'm the biggest human being most people who know me have ever met or ever will. The government definition of obesity is a body mass index of 30 or more. My BMI is 60.7. My shirts are size XXXXXXL, which the big and tall store is shortened to 6X. I'm six foot one, or 73 inches tall. My waist is 60 inches around. I'm nearly a sphere. Those are the numbers. This is how it feels. I'm on the subway in New York City, standing in the aisle, clinging to the pole. I live in Charlotte and don't visit New York much, so I don't have a feel for how subway cars move. I'm praying this one doesn't lurch around a corner slammed to a stop because I'm terrified of falling. Part of it is embarrassment. When a fat guy falls, it's hard to get up. But what really scares me is the chance I might land on somebody. I glance at the people wedged around me. None of them could take my weight. It would be an avalanche. Some of them stare at me and I figure they're thinking the same thing. There's an old woman sitting three feet away. One slip and I'd crush her. I'd grip the pole harder. My palms start to sweat, and all of a sudden, I flash back to elementary school in Georgia, standing in the aisle on the bus. The driver hollers at me to find a seat. He can't take us home until everybody sits down. I'm the only one standing. Every time I spot an open space, Somebody slides to the edge of the seat and covers it up. Nobody wants the fat boy mashed in next to them. I freeze, helpless. The driver glares at me in the rearview mirror. An older kid sitting in front of me, a redhead, freckles, I'll never forget his face, has a cast on his right arm. He reaches back and starts clubbing me with it, below the waist, out of the driver's line of sight. He catches me in the groin, and it hurts, but not as much as the shame when the other kids laugh and the bus driver gets up and storms toward me and the train stops and jolts me back into the now. I peel my hands from the pole and get off. I climb the stairs to the street and step to the side to catch my breath. I'm wheezing like a 30-year smoker. My legs wobble from the climb. I'm meeting a friend near Central Park at a place called the Brooklyn Diner. Why is there a Brooklyn Diner in Manhattan? Are Manhattan diners not up to lofty Brooklyn standards? I have time to think about such things. I'm 15 minutes early, on purpose, because I have to find a safe place to sit. The night before, I googled Brooklyn Diner interior to get an idea of the layout. Now I scan the space like a gangster, looking for dangerous spots. The booths are too small. I can't squeeze in. The bar stools are bolted to the floor. They're too close to the bar, and my ass would hang off the back. I check the tables, gauging the chairs. Flimsy chairs creak and quake beneath me. These look solid. I spot a table in the corner with just enough room. I sit down slowly. The chair seems okay, yep, it'll hold me up. For the first time in an hour, I take an untroubled breath. My friend shows up on time. By then, I scouted out the menu. Eggs, bacon, toast, coffee. A few bites and the shame fades, at least for a little while. One thing I learned um, from all the work I did before writing about myself, was to to cover myself basically, to write about myself with the same rigor that I would in writing about anybody else. Um, meaning that I didn't give myself, um, I, I didn't try to be easy on myself or at least any more easy than I would have been on somebody else. So as I thought about that stuff in my internal landscape as it, I went through my memoir, I tried to think about if I was writing, if this was somebody else, I was writing about, how would I do it? And that led me sometimes to when I had three or four choices of, say, an anecdote to illustrate some point I was making. I didn't always pick the one that made me look the best. And sometimes I I ended up picking the one that made me look the worst, but it illustrated the point I was trying to make the best. And so as I'm thinking about other people, too, and this sort of goes back to maybe your original question, I think about if it was me on the other end, you know, and I had somebody writing about me, what would I want them to be? You know, and I would hope more than anything that they would be accurate, honest, and fair. And that's what I looked for, tried to do when I was writing my, my own
0: memoir. Tell me how your spouse, Alex, experienced the writing of the book. And I ask because you give her a shout out on your Twitter. And I'm curious what that half looks like. And I, and I asked that question also coming from an informed place that somehow my personal life always finds a way into the work I'm doing eventually in its own way. And in obviously in a memoir or in something that's very deeply personal, like what you've written, how did your spouse experience that?
1: Well, Alex is a former journalist, too. In fact, we met at the newspaper, and so that's how we got to know each other, was through our kind of shared love of that business. Um, I think as I wrote the memoir, especially, she was my first and most important reader. She read everything before before it, anybody else saw it, I think. And I, I thought from the get-go that if she thought something was wrong or unfair, or inaccurate, or any of those things, it was not getting in. And there were there are points in the memoir that are very open and, and sort of uh, crack open, kind of secrets about our marriage, things that, that we had not told other people, even our friends before then. And those especially are things that I wanted to make sure she saw. She was comfortable with and was willing to let that be in the story. If she had said no to any of it, I would have taken it out because beyond just being faithful to the journalism, I'm faithful to her. And so you know, I think I think there are probably things in the book that are hard for both of us to read and think about. And that was the intention this was to get some of that difficult information into a book. But I think in the end, she was comfortable. With whatever was in there, and and she was my first, best, most loyal reader. By any reasonable standard, I have won life's lottery. I grew up with two loving parents in a peaceful house. I've spent my whole career doing work that thrills me, writing for newspapers and magazines. I married the best woman I've ever known, Alex Felsing. And I love her more now than when my heart first tumbled for her. We live in an old house in Charlotte with a yellow lab mutt named Fred. We're blessed with strong families and a deep bench of friends. Our lives are full of music and laughter. I wouldn't swap with anyone. Except on those mornings when I wake up and take a long naked look in the mirror. My body is a car wreck. Skin tags, long mole-like growths caused by chafing, dangle under my arms and down in my crotch. I have breasts where my chest ought to be. My belly is strafed with more stretch marks than a mother of five. My stomach hangs below my waist, giving me what the Urban Dictionary calls a front butt, as if some twisted Dr. Frankenstein grafted an extra rear end on the wrong side. Varicose veins bulge from my thighs. My calves and shins are rust colored and shiny from a condition called chronic venous insufficiency. You never want any medical condition that contains the words chronic and insufficiency. Here's what it means. The veins in my legs aren't strong enough to push all the blood back up toward my heart so it pulls in my capillaries and forces little dots of iron up under my skin. The veins are failing because of the pressure caused by 460 pounds pushing downward with every step I take. My body is crumbling under its own gravity. Some days when I see that disaster staring back, I get so mad that I pound my gut with my fists as if I could beat the fat out of me. Other times, the sight sinks me into a blue fog that can ruin an hour or a morning or a day. But most of the time, what I feel is sadness over how much life I've wasted. When I was a kid, I never climbed a tree or learned to swim. When I was in my 20s, I never took a girl home from a bar. Now I'm 50 and I've never hiked a mountain or ridden a skateboard or done a cartwheel. I missed out on so many adventures, so many good times, because I was too fat to try. Sometimes when I could have tried anyway, I didn't have the guts. I've done a lot of things I'm proud of, but I've never believed I could do anything truly great because I failed so many times at the one crucial challenge in my life. What the hell is wrong with me? What the hell is wrong with us? As I write this, the Centers for Disease Control estimates that 79 million American adults, 40% of women, and 35% of men qualify as obese. That's more than the total attendance of every Major League Baseball game last year. Our kids are right behind us. The obesity rate among American children is 17% and climbing. Our collective waistline laps over every boundary, age, race, gender, politics, culture. In our fractured country, we all agree on one thing, second helpings. Fat America runs on the fuel of easy and cheap junk food, motivated by constant ads for burgers and beer, soothed and sated by oversized portions. At most movie theaters now, A small soft drink is 32 ounces. No reasonable definition of small encompasses a quart of Coke. The English language, like my elastic-waisted cargo shorts, has stretched to fit our expanding country. As every fat person knows, there's no such thing as a cheap buffet. You always pay later, one way or another. Fat America comes with a devastating bill. According to government estimates, Americans pay $147 billion a year in medical costs related to obesity. That's roughly equal to the entire budget for the U.S. Army. But the money is just part of the cost. Every fat person and every fat person's family pays with anger and heartache and pain. For every one of us who can't shed the weight, There are spouses and parents and kids and friends who grieve for us. We carve lines in their faces. We sentence them to long years alone. I know this from experience. I also feel it like a burning knife right now. Because my sister, Brenda Williams, died on Christmas Eve. One of the great joys in our family was getting Brenda to laugh. If somebody cracked an off color joke, her eyes cranked open wide and her eyebrows flew up her forehead like a cartoon. Sometimes she let out a low cackle that tickled me even more. She and her husband, Ed Williams, had been married 43 years and raised three kids. Brenda was never happier than when she had a house full of the people she loved but she didn't laugh as much the last few years. Her weight scared her and isolated her and eventually it killed her. Brenda was 63 and weighed well north of 200 pounds. Her feet swelled so much she could hardly wear shoes. Her thighs cramped so bad with so little warning that she was afraid to drive. For years, she dealt with sores on her legs caused by the swelling. They leaked fluid and wouldn't heal. In late December, one of the sores got infected. Brenda was tough, so by the time she admitted she was sick, she was in deep trouble. Her husband took her to the emergency room in Jessup, Georgia, as we were heading to Tennessee to spend Christmas with Alex's folks. My brother called at two in the morning on Christmas Eve and said things were getting worse. We tried to sleep for a couple hours, got up, and got on the road. The infection turned out to be MRSA. It spread so goddamn fast. We were somewhere outside Asheville when my brother sent a text. She's gone. The funeral was on my mom's 82nd birthday. She cried tears from the bottom of the ocean. She lived next door to Brenda and Ed for almost 20 years. We moved her there after she retired. She spent so many nights telling stories around Brenda and Ed's dining room table. Now she won't go back in their house. All she can see is the empty space where Brenda used to be. The infection was the official cause of Brenda's death, but her weight killed her sure as poison. What happens when someone close to you dies? People bring food. It arrived at Brenda and Ed's house and my mom's within minutes and in great quantities. Neighbors made potato salad and pecan pie. Folks who didn't cook brought cold cuts and light bread. One of Ed's friends arranged for the Western Sizzlin' down the road to send a whole rolling cart of meat and vegetables. No matter where you stood, You were no more than 10 feet from fried chicken. I crammed everything I could onto my double thick paper plate. The sugar and grease pushed back the grief just for a minute or two, long enough to breathe. This is the terrible catch 22. The thing that soothes the pain prolongs it. The thing that brings me back to life pushes me closer to the grave. I think a lot these days about a guy named David Poole. David and I worked together at the Charlotte Observer. He was a brilliant NASCAR writer when I was a local columnist. I weighed more than David, but he was shorter and rounder. We didn't look alike, but we were two fat guys with our pictures in the paper, so readers lumped us together. People would come up to me on the street and ask if I was him. He was one of the smartest guys I've ever met, a great reporter with a fearless voice, one of Alex's closest friends for years. David died of a heart attack when he was 50. I'm about to turn 51. Guys like us don't make it to 60. Some of us rot away from diabetes or blow out an artery from high blood pressure, but a heart attack is what I worry about most. My doctor likes to quote a statistic. In a third of the cases of heart disease, the first symptom is death. Right now my heart tests out fine, but I can hear it thumping in my temples. 80 something beats a minute even when I'm resting, and I know I make it work too hard. Sometimes when it's quiet in the house, I close my eyes and listen to its strain, praying that it won't just stop like a needle lifted off a record. Every day I wonder if this is the day I might keel over in my office chair or at the bookstore or, God help me, at the wheel of my car. At 460 pounds, I'm lucky to have made it this far. It's like holding 20 at the blackjack table and waving at the dealer for another card. Without a miracle, I'm bound to bust. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. I lust after greasy double cheeseburgers and fried chicken legs and ruffles straight, straight, straight out of the bag. I covet hot Krispy Kreme donuts that melt on my tongues, that melt on my tongue. I worship bowls full of peanut M&Ms, first savoring them one by one, then stuffing my mouth with handfuls, then wetting my finger to pick up those last bits of chocolate dust and candy shell. My brain pings with pleasure, my taste buds grown with desire. This happens over and over, day after day, and that is how I got here. Closer to the end of my life than the beginning, weighing almost a quarter of a ton. More than anything, I wanna buy time. I wanna write every story that needs to come out of me. I wanna be the old retired guy with nothing to do but read books and play cards. I wanna pack a bag and fill a cooler and get in the car and just ramble. I wanna kiss Alex on her 80th birthday, and I want her to kiss me on mine. I want to look back and be able to say with an honest heart that my years were not wasted. I can't say that now. I've wasted so many. After we got back from Georgia, I hung my black suit in the closet. It's my only suit. I bought it 17 years ago to get married in. I had to have it cut special at a big men's store called Thick and Thin. We ended up going with a tuxedo for the wedding, but I kept the suit. Sometimes it's a little tight, sometimes a little loose, but it more or less fits because I've been more or less the same size all these years. I've worn it to other people's weddings, to a few fancy parties, to a couple of anniversary dinners. Mostly, I've worn it to funerals. I wore it to Brenda's. Before long, I fear, it's the suit I will be buried in.
0: Were you ever feeling like you didn't know where the book could go because you explore this incredibly up close and personal narrative in your own fashion that we like, because we on this show like deeply appreciate your vulnerability. And I know more than one person on this staff was, was affected by your reading. So for our listeners, where do you draw the line between these varying levels of visceral pain? Like in the instance you just talked about with honoring your relationship, you know, honoring your marriage, where do you draw that line between what you give to us and what you keep for yourself?
1: I think the the issue is <clears throat> basically it comes down to what's useful to other people. You know, I, I didn't go into the memoir writing business to just sort of like empty my guts in front of the world. You know, this is not like self-torture porn or anything like that. It's more what is, what in my life might somebody else find meaningful, useful to their own life. And so that was sort of the standard for me. So there, you know, as I've I've kind of joked several times, this book is not a tell-all. You know, it's a tell-most, but it's not a tell-all. There's certainly stories about my life, some more painful than the ones in the book, that I didn't tell mostly because I didn't know if anybody would get anything useful out of them. You know, I wanted to tell stories that people could, you know, take something from, use it in their own life, make meaning out of it. You know, the, um, as I've often said, we had a cliche in the newspaper business when we used to write about these disaster stories and that sort of thing. We'd focus on one person and then the transition to the bigger story would always be, but he is not alone or she is not alone. And that's, sort of a uh, trite thing to say in a story but the truth is that 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 is a bigger there's a bigger truth there that any of us who may think we're alone because we're overweight because we're bullied because we're have eating disorders whatever it is in your life that you feel like may define you there are other people who are going through the same thing you are not alone in that and my book the intention of my writing, my book, was just a big version of You Are Not Alone. I've experienced these things, and maybe some of them will ring a bell with you as things you've experienced, even when you thought nobody else could understand. And that is, I think, a very common feeling, a very common emotion to have. And what I hoped with the book from the beginning is that people might be able to relate to it, even if they didn't have my particular issue. You know, my favorite piece of correspondence I've gotten since I wrote this book. I've gotten thousands and thousands of emails and letters and things from all over the world. I got a handwritten letter from a guy in Austria. I have no idea how he even found the book. I didn't even know it was available over there. But he wrote like a 10-page handwritten letter. And the thing that struck me about it the most was that he doesn't struggle with his weight. This guy struggled with depression. But in my story, he found something that he thought resonated and rhymed with his story. And so my story was useful to him. And so that that letter was incredibly gratifying to me, because that's what I set out to do with the book.
0: Hey, there's still more story and conversation to go. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. You are listening to Storybound, with author Tommy Tomlinson, and he's reading from his book, The Elephant in the Room.
1: Everybody in my family was an artist when it came to Southern food. The women cooked the most, but the men could swing a meal now and then. Daddy's specialty was chicken and dumplings, with the dumplings made from crumbled up soda crackers. The show of the year was a family reunion at Uncle Ted and Aunt Estelle's house in Nahunta, Georgia, which is known, if it is known, for once hosting the World Armadillo Olympics. Uncle Ted worked in the pole mills and played country blues on his guitar. Aunt Estelle, my dad's sister, was rough as a cop. From the time I was about 10, every time we showed up, she'd take one look at me and holler, You ain't lost no weight. And then she would call us into the kitchen where we would add our dishes to Heaven's Buffet. Most of the time, the center of the table was a platter of fried chicken piled so high it would topple if you pulled out the wrong leg. There'd be pork chops, turkey and dressing, beef stew, maybe venison if it was hunting season. Then the white food group. Mashed potatoes, potato salad, deviled eggs, rice with brown gravy, biscuits and cornbread shining with butter, and then the vegetables. Crowder peas and Kentucky Wonder pole beans, crookneck squash and fried okra, turnip greens and salty pot liquor, sliced tomatoes picked five minutes ago. This paragraph is as close as I will ever come to writing porn. There was no way to get all the goodness on one plate. Anywhere my family gathered, a normal meal was too helping. Three if you hadn't tried the meatloaf. If you stopped after one, somebody would ask if you were sick. The desserts were off to the side on a counter. Somebody would have set out dessert plates, but most of us used our regular plates for the extra room, not caring if the carrot cake soaked up chicken grease. We'd have pecan pie, banana pudding, peach cobbler, pound cake as dense and rich as peat moss. One year in the early 70s, one of our cousins who had moved to Minnesota brought home her new husband. He was Japanese. I'm pretty sure nobody at that reunion had ever met a Japanese person before that moment, unless it was in the war. He showed up with a cooler of ice cream. We loved him immediately. After supper was a time of groaning and unbuckled belts. Time to sit around and sulk, Uncle Ted would say. The women would clean up and gather around the kitchen table. The men would go outside and lean on the bed of somebody's truck, smoking cigarettes or pinching off jaws of day's work tobacco. As a kid, I had a ticket to both worlds, the women and the men, and I'd hang around the fringes listening to the stories. Sometimes the hero of the outside version was the villain of the inside version. Either way, the stories always had pace, suspense, humor, and a lesson at the end. I'm the only one out of my family who makes a living telling stories, but in many ways I'm the worst storyteller in my family. I've spent my life trying to rework my family's magic tricks, to take that sound and that feeling and turn it into words on a page. My kin, without knowing it, created a writer. Without intending to, they also created a fat boy. By the time I came around, the people in my family were off the farm, but most of them still worked with their hands and their backs. I was different. I never had to pick cotton or sweat out a shift at the mill. I ran around outside and played ball, but what I really loved was reading books. My soft life had no chance against a southern supper table. A few people in my family were starting to grow pot bellies, but most still had the jobs and the metabolism to burn off big suppers. I didn't. But the food was so good, I couldn't stay away. I'd sneak back into the kitchen for an extra chicken leg or a hunk of pie I'd eat out of my bare hand. The grown-ups would chase me off, but they weren't serious about it. They were proud of what they grew and caught and cooked. None of us had money, but we were wealthy at the table. I ate better than anyone I knew. I also ate more. My dad's full name was Leonard Milton Tomlinson, But people always called him Tommy, and he figured that's what everybody would call me. So my folks made it official. It's Tommy on my birth certificate, not Thomas or Tom. From then on, I was little Tommy, and he was big Tommy. It didn't take me long to turn that into a joke. By the time I was 12, I was bigger than him.
0: what you hit on with the book and, the, and how it affected me and how it affected other people here on the staff here both Puglomerate and Lithub, I believe it did hit on this note of it didn't necessarily matter what you know where you were coming from if it was being overweight or if it was depression or if it was it didn't necessarily matter that it mattered the honesty with which you approached it and I I really appreciate it and I'm looking forward to how you continue to explore this novel space? You say your next book is the Westminster Dog Show.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a total you know one eighty. I you know I I dealt with this with writing this memoir took you know from start to f- to publication about four years, and there was a lot to dig into. You know, it was a obviously a, a, a sort of deep dive internally and you know, led me to think about a lot of things and I'm still continuing to think about those things and process them and deal with all this stuff and get healthier and all those things. That hasn't stopped. But I did want to write about other stuff. I'm basically a a generalist at my core. I write about lots of different things. And as we were tossing around ideas for what I might write about next, one of the things I pitched to my editors was that I felt like there hadn't been a great book about dog shows. And that this was this interesting subculture that you know people watch it maybe once a year or they've seen that movie best in show, and and they just kind of wonder how people get into it and what's it like for the dogs and all that sort of thing. And I just thought it would be a fascinating book, and it's turned out to be even more fascinating than I thought. It's just a really cool world to dive into. But yeah, it's very different than than my first book, and and I hope. I hope The third book's very different than the second one. I kind of like moving around and trying different things.
0: Hey, there's still a little bit more story to go. We'll be right back after our final commercial break. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber. To improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. You are listening to Storybound with author Tommy Tomlinson, and he's reading from his book, The Elephant in the Room.
1: options for people like me. There are boot camps where I could spend thousands of dollars to have trainers whip me into shape. There are crash diets and medications with dangerous side effects. And of course there's weight loss surgery. Several people I know have done it. Some say it saved them. Others had life-threatening complications. A few are just as miserable as they were before. I don't judge any people who try to find their own way. I speak only for myself here. For me, surgery feels like giving up. I know that the first step of 12-step programs is admitting that you're powerless over your addiction, but I don't feel powerless yet. The hog in my dream terrifies me. He's vicious and strong, but somewhere under all these folds of fat, is a small part of me that still believes I can take him. Being a journalist, I work best on deadline. Do you know where the word comes from? In the Civil War in my home state of Georgia, there was a horrible Confederate prison called Andersonville. Tens of thousands of captured Union soldiers starved and suffered there. More than 13,000 died. Inside the prison, there was a wooden railing that separated the prisoners from the stockade walls. It wasn't much of a barrier, except that when any prisoners tried to climb it or even touch it, the guards shot them on sight. That railing was the deadline. In my life, I am the prisoner and I am the guard. With every big meal and every day spent on the couch, I have reached closer to the railing and I have fired a slow bullet aimed for my heart. Here's my deadline. By the end of 2015, one year from now, I'm gonna lose weight and get in shape. I'm not gonna set a number because every time I've done that, I've fallen short. My goal is to prove that I can head down the right path and stay on it. I have to show that I won't quit when it's hard because it's gonna be hard. If I get to the end of the year and I failed every option goes back on the table. Boot camp, pills, surgery, everything. I have a long history of doing this the wrong way. I've thought about a few simple things that might help me do it right. But it will take more than just a meal plan and a walk every morning. I have to dig deep. in college, I went to Atlanta to visit Virgil Riles and Perry Beard, my two closest friends, who at the time were students at Georgia Tech. They had a bunch of people over to their apartment and everybody was drinking and somebody started up a game called questions. One person starts off by asking anybody else in the group a question. That person doesn't answer the question. Instead, he or she immediately turns to somebody else and asks a different question. You go until somebody can't think of a question. It's harder than it sounds. Especially if you've been pounding Jose Cuervo and Bud Lights. A couple of guys I didn't know were at the party. They were drunker than everybody else, but they had come up with a winning strategy. Every time one of them had to take a turn, he'd look at me and go, Tommy, why are you so fat? They thought this was hilarious. It was even funnier to them that I kept losing the game. Once they asked me that, I couldn't stammer out a question to anybody else. After three or four rounds of this, I slipped off into the kitchen. I thought about going back in with my own question. How would you like me to beat the shit out of you? My fists were ready, but my heart wasn't in it. Those guys were assholes but they were asking the same question I had asked myself my whole life. Why am I so fat? I've never really understood why I eat so much and why I've never been able to slow down for good. I need to make sense of how I grew up, crack the shell on some old memories, reach down and feel around in dark places, find out what's waiting down there in the mud. I fight my cravings every day, My weight affects everything I do. It's going to kill me if I don't change. I've spent a lifetime telling other people's stories. My weight is the biggest story of my life, but I haven't told it. Because I was embarrassed, because I was afraid, because I knew I didn't understand myself. It's time to tell it. It's time to go to work. I'm on deadline.
0: The excerpts you heard in this episode were from Tommy's book, The Elephant in the Room, available now at your favorite local bookseller. Thank you to our friends at Simon & Schuster, Epidemic Sound, and thank you to Tommy for showing us what vulnerability and strength look like. Production assistance by Matt Keeley, Joni Deutsch, Madison Richards, and Morgan Swift from the Pogglomerate. Audio cleanup by Courtney Deans. Social media help from Sylvia Beltill. Our production coordinator is Jordan Aaron. Our mix engineers, Tim Carplus. Editing, sound design, scoring, arranging, and hosting are done by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are myself, Jeff Umbro of The Podglomerate, and Justin Alvarez of Lit Hub. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at StoryBoundPod. You can also tweet at me directly at Jude Brewery. New episodes are every Tuesday.